they get golly hard when they jumble. Jumping over hurdles, slowing verbs like a turtle. Merc and fool, like Squirtle and Kate Gould. Cold blood is with this rhyme scheme, I'm a boss. This is That Got Me Thinking, and I'm Ellie Newman. This week, I've been thinking about the fracturing of America. I've been thinking about we the people, about tolerance and intolerance, and what it really means to be liberal or conservative. I've been thinking about what motivates people to be inclusive or exclusive, and what allows us to expand our definition of we, and what threatens us so that we draw the lines of us so narrowly that even those we share many commonalities with are considered other. I've been thinking deeply about intellectual integrity and the Venn diagram. My guest today is Peter Weiner. He is a senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. He served in the Reagan and George H. W. Bush administrations prior to becoming deputy director of speech writing for President George W. Bush, and later headed the Office of Strategic Initiatives. He is a contributing op-ed writer for the New York Times, covering American politics and conservative thought. His writing can be found in numerous other publications, and he can be seen regularly these days as a guest commentator on Fox News, CNN, and MSNBC, just to name a few. Welcome, Mr. Weiner, and thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for having me on. So we're going to dive right in. Uh, You had said that our political culture is sick, and I'm wondering how sick are we, and is there hope? Uh, well, I think we are pretty sick. Uh, I, I think we're in a in a dangerous moment, um, and I do think there's uh, there's hope. But uh, but let me disaggregate. Um, when I say that the political culture is is sick, I mean by that in part um, that our political uh, discourse is um, uh, is dumbed down. Um, but beyond that, uh, there's a level of dehumanization that I think um, characterizes um, political discourse today that's unusual. Um, in my lifetime, um, at uh, at least, you know, politics has always been um, a contentious business. Um, and if you go through the history of America, there have been some very uh, deeply divided times. Uh, the Civil War, obviously, but if you go back really to the founding of the Republic, the election in 1800 between Jefferson and Adams, um, which almost uh, broke the the new republic apart, as, as scholars have have written. So that's always been a feature of um, uh, of American uh, politics, but at least in modern times, I have a sense that um, things are worse in that regard. That the rhetoric um, is harsher um, and the dehumanization uh, greater, the unwillingness to listen to other people more than ever, and the the temptation to view people with whom you disagree not just um, as opponents but as enemies. Um, and and so that that really does bother me, and I don't think that we have the political leadership, certainly not now with Donald Trump as president, but we haven't had for some period of time the political leadership that is up to that challenge and that can help repair the the uh, the breach that exists. I was thinking even in recent history during the Vietnam War and the division between those who supported it and against it and between establishment and the hippie culture. But somehow those were different, it seems, different divisions where they had different results. And so we'll talk a little bit more about that. I want to start with whether or not you think there is also an unprecedented assault on truth in our current times. I do. Um, you know, this this assault on truth, uh, objective truth, that that that, uh, that objective truth exists, and that there is a truth that uh, that uh, that is out there. That's been under assault uh, on the American academy, colleges, and universities, 
and in intellectual circles for a long time. We can go back to Nietzsche and, and, and the deconstructionist movement, some of the existentialists, uh, Foucault and, and, uh, and others. So that's been around for some period of time. I think what's unusual now is that that's uh, now spread and, uh, and transmuted really to our po- political culture in a way that, that I haven't seen before. And I think Donald Trump is, is emblematic of that. Is I think what we're seeing with with Donald Trump is is a person who um, who has uh, undertaken uh, a, a really brazen and sustained assault uh, on truth through his campaign and since he's been president. Um, and what's striking is not just the lies, but the velocity of the lies. And it's the idea that, uh, in my estimation, that he's uh, he's saying things that are patently untrue, that are demonstrably untrue, that you can go to the videotape and see that are untrue, and yet he keeps doing it. And it is as if he's he's trying to delegitimize the idea of truth itself. Well, and I think he's also... Uh, no, yeah, no, go right. ahead, go ahead. Well, I also think that that there's a there's there's probably a strategy behind this uh, as well, which is I think that uh, he is trying to delegitimize uh, media outlets uh, so if and when we get to the point where uh, where he, he really is in trouble, as I think he, he increasingly is uh, on the issues related to, to, to Russia and Russian intervention in the election and how much his campaign and people in his White House may have may have been involved in that. I think the, the idea here is to try and so delegitimize um, press outlets that no matter what they say, uh, some number of his supporters, not hopefully a majority, but some significant number of supporters will simply ignore it. They'll say, well, this is all fake news. This is the mainstream media. They're out to get Donald Trump. And well, you're going to believe me or you're lying eyes and, and they're going to believe Trump. So that is, I think, different. Um, it's, of course, been the case that throughout uh, American history, politicians have shaded the truth, um, have have said things that are false, even said things that are that are lies. But I just think that Donald Trump is, is a person who is in a category all his own. And that uh, that really does alarm me, because if, if we lose the basis of truth, among other things, we lose the capacity to to reason together and to try and find solutions to uh, to common problems. Well, it's interesting because when I heard you on NPR mention that, that sort of pinning it on academia, I thought, well, Mr. Weiner's an intellectual, he's educated, you know, and I had to think about it a bit. When we talk about it now, I'm thinking really the point that you're making is that this has spread, regardless of maybe where its beginnings were, it has spread to the masses and that a huge now portion of society is saying, you know what, we're just going to go with what we think, what we feel in our gut, or what what President Trump or anyone else tells us who we respect or want to follow. And we're going to stop there. And it really doesn't matter how much evidence there may be to the contrary. We're really not interested in looking at that and doing any sort of assessment. Yeah, that's exactly uh, my sense my sense of things. <clears throat> you know, this, this assault on truth in the academy that I mentioned was primarily confined to the humanities departments, not, not, not in the hard sciences. And it certainly wasn't prevalent at every, every college and university campus. But there's no question <clears throat> that if, you, if you're familiar with the intellectual currents um, of, the, of the last 75 years or more, <clears throat> that that's, this element of either arguing that truth doesn't exist or our capacity to, to, to ascertain truth uh, is is something we can't have. I mean, that's that's been there for for a long time. But what is different is 
that this was confined largely to the academy and relatively obscure debates like like deconstructionism in, in literature and so forth. But I do think that what's happened now is that it's um, it's morphed into our political culture, and um, and that's something that what what I'm seeing is people are creating in, in many respects their own narrative, their own script. They're coming up with their own set of facts. The ones that they don't like, they're simply denying, um, and they say, I, I want to see things a certain way, I want to live a certain way, and I'm not going to be bothered by um, by by what, what alternative facts are. And I think part of the reason for that is the social media age and technology, because uh, my supposition here is that <clears throat> what we're dealing with is something that's been consistent to, to human beings and a temptation for human nature since the beginning of, of humankind, this idea of confirmation bias and motivated reasoning the term of social scientists that is going out in search of, of data and arguments that support pre-existing views. That's nothing new. But I think what is new is we have the capacity now because of technology and social media to create an existence in which you can go through any given day, any given week, any given month. And you all you will find, if you're so inclined, is people to confirm what you already believe and attack uh, those who, who, um, who see things differently than you. And you have access to crazy conspiracy theories that in the past were, were on the fringe and really weren't accessible to most people. And now, if you want to find them, you, you, you can. So I don't think human nature has changed, but I think that there's been technological progress and social media progress that is reinforcing some of these um, pre-existing and dangerous tendencies. And, and that, I think, has created some real problems. And it seems on top of that, there's a an acceptance of hypocrisy as well in reasoning, that on top of the conspiracy theories and the paranoia and the alternate facts, that you can sort of change your, your pers- not just your perspective, but your stance on something, flip it on its head, and when that's pointed out, it's like, well, that's okay. You know, I, I, it's different if it's me or if it's different if it's today. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And again, hypocrisy is nothing new, but there used to be a kind of, uh, people would feel some amount of shame or embarrassment if they were caught in a hypocrisy. But it seems like today that is not really the case. I mean, I think Donald Trump is, is really, in, in one sense, a, a manifestation, crystallization of that. There are so many things that he has said uh, that are contrary to, to what he has said in the past, or he's reversed course or criticisms that he made at one time are things that he'll praise now. And the same thing is going on with his supporters. And this is not, by the way, confined just to, to, to Republicans and people on the right. This exists with Democrats and people on the left um, as well. And it's this notion that it's a kind of political tribalism. Um, I, I had an interview, um, probably I'd, I'd say about two months ago, with a national radio talk show host that I know, someone I've actually been in touch with throughout the Trump uh, campaign and, and the, the 2016 campaign and, and now the Trump presidency. And he is an always Trumper. He's always defending Trump. And, and I'm somebody who, while being a Republican and conservative, has been quite critical of Trump. Indeed, I've been critical of him precisely in, in some respects because I am a conservative. But we've had a good relationship and I was on his, his show. And in the course of that, we got into this very issue. And I said, you know, the difference between us is I'm willing to praise Donald Trump when he makes decisions that I agree with, and I'll do so in, in any forum. I think that 
Neil Gorsuch was a superb Supreme Court nominee. I think that General Mattis is a terrific person for Secretary of Defense. I think Francis Collins is a wonderful director of National Institutes of Health, uh, and um, and 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 so on and so forth. But what I found is that he will not publicly criticize Trump. And when I challenged him on that, he essentially acknowledged it. But his explanation was, "I'm part of the team, and he's the quarterback of the team." And Donald Trump is is um, being criticized by enough people in the mainstream media, the so-called mainstream media. He doesn't need me to chime in. And I said, well, can't you just say, look, I like Donald Trump more than Hillary Clinton. If you think he's a really good president, you could say that. But I disagree with him on X or Y or Z. And he just wouldn't do it because he feels like there's a kind of loyalty or political tribalism. And I said, uh, he said he's, he's loyal to Trump. And I said, be loyal to truth. And he said he's being loyal to country, meaning that always defending Trump. And that was a very, for me, kind of vivid uh, illustration of this, this political tribalism. And one of the things I've said in writing, and I said to him on the radio show, is if Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama did something and you were going to criticize him for it, and, and, and Donald Trump does the same thing and you won't criticize him or you'll defend him, that doesn't have intellectual integrity. Then it's all a game. Um, and that I'm, I'm worried is, is where we are to a degree that, that I really haven't seen before. In relationship to, to politicians and people maybe living in political silos, let's talk a little bit more about the identification with a party. Um, Bob Sass talked about that, I thought, wonderfully in his open letter to Trump earlier. And, and he points out the team metaphor. He said people are you know, more aligned with their political party when, you know, and this isn't a sports team. This isn't what government is about, and this isn't the purpose of government or political parties. Where do you think that shift has come from? Yeah, I, I'd say, you know, I, I would put a little bit of a of a caveat because it's complicated. I'm not sure if it's if it's just loyalty to party, although I think some of that is going on. But let me just on, on the Republican side, take as an example um, the loyalty that Trump inspires among among some large number of people. Many people uh, on the right, on the American right, uh, particularly in the in the conservative communications uh, complex, talk radio and, and and elsewhere, were very very critical. If you listen to talk radio over the last six seven years, uh, people like uh, Mitch McConnell and uh, John Boehner and now Paul Ryan. And they would criticize Jeb Bush and Mitch Daniels, uh, who were very, very conservative governors. And they would criticize them on conservative grounds, saying, you know, if there was some deviation from their perceived orthodoxy, that they were so-called rhinos, Republicans in name only. And yet along comes Donald Trump, who's had many more ideological transgressions than people like Mitch Daniels and and Jeb Bush um, by probably a hundredfold. Trump himself was a liberal for many years. He supported liberal causes. He was a late convert to the Republican Party. He's not even a conservative. Yet these very people who portray themselves as champions of conservatism, sort of the purists, the people who are going to who are going to guard the dogma, rally behind Trump and defend him uh, now often under every assault. And so the question was why? Why is that? Why would they have attacked? People who were more ideological, they were more ideologically close to, and yet when it came to Trump, they would defend uh, uh, under almost all circumstances. And what I came to be convinced of is <clears throat> it's the Trump style. That Trump has embodied a kind of mode of discourse 
uh, and approach, a kind of anger and agitation and resentment that spoke very deeply to them. And when he would go after Trump, I'm, I'm speaking of here, go after the press with, with a pickaxe, um, that brought such delight to so many people on the right that they were willing to, to forgive him uh, any number of ideological transgressions that they never would have let uh, others get, get away with. So that was the one caveat I wanted to say. But beyond that, how did we get to this point and, and what explains this political tribalism? I think it's a complicated uh, I think it's a complicated question. Um, I think part of it is that um, that right now the country uh, is sluggish. It's economically sluggish. It's culturally going through enormous changes. We're in the midst of really an extraordinary uh, economic shift in dislocation. And um, you know, Americans have been used to gotten used to uh, growth rates at three, three and a half percent. I mean, that really was the norm. From, for American history from really 1960 until 2000. Then for a complicated set of reasons, um, globalization and, and, and automation and trade and lots of other things, <clears throat> the country began to split apart, come apart between high-skilled workers and low-skilled workers. Um, and you had uh, growth rates, which flattened out. So instead of you know 3.5%, 3% from 2000 to 2009, it was about uh, 1.5 to 1.9%. And then during the Obama years, it was it was uh, lower than that. And so what does that mean? It means if the country isn't growing well, we're not having economic growth. There's more suffering going on, economic suffering, more pressure. And then you have healthcare costs and college tuition costs going up. But the country is kind of out of sorts, and that creates a, a, um, a, an anger. And people begin to look inward, and they begin uh, to to uh, view others in a particularly harsh spotlight. It's not unusual historically uh, for years after uh, the kind of economic crisis that we had in 2008 for an ugly kind of populism to rise up because people uh, begin to look within. They look for, for, for enemies who they consider the other, and in this case, I think we're seeing it. Often you see it, and in this case, I think we're seeing it. Toward, uh, toward, toward immigrants. So I think the country <clears throat> itself is in a kind of distemper, in a bad mood, in a foul mood. Um, and that's manifest itself in, in, uh, in politics. Um, and, and in a fracturing, that, right? From what you're saying, there's a fracturing within the populace and also within the political parties, that the we is not as solid, that even even like if you look at the Republican Party, I was thinking about that this morning, that that there and 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 the the Democrats that even though there was disagreement and different positions, there was I think a sense of we we the government we the representatives and that seems to have disappeared. I think that's right. Uh, I think the sense that sort of for bazunum out of many one that ideal that that credo of America has uh, has suffered. And you are seeing a, a coming apart, to, to borrow a, a title from the social scientist Charles Murray, wrote a book several years ago, really anticipating what, what the, the, the point where we are now, which is how, uh, because of the changing nature of, of the economy and, and um, the fracturing of, of, uh, of, of families and communities in low-income areas, and then you have certain parts of uh, of, of, of America, cities and towns that, that have been, you know, essentially wiped out 
um, because of, of globalization and automation and technology. Now, those things aren't bad in and of themselves. You couldn't stop them if you wanted to, and you shouldn't. But you have to recognize, we have to recognize, that there can be a human cost as you go through these changes. And, and beyond, in addition to all of that, in terms of the political tribalism, you've had something that um, the political scientists refer, refer to as the big sort. That is, if you go back to the political parties you know, 50 years ago, even 30, 35 years ago during, during the Reagan era, you had conservative Democrats and liberal Republicans and there was some area of common ground that they were able to um, to find. So, for example, when Ronald Reagan, uh, in, in his first year, 1981, passed through his uh, economic agenda, which was primarily uh, tax cuts, uh, re- Democrats were in control of Congress and the House by a wide margin. But Reagan uh, got got his his um, his legislation passed, and it was by going after what they called at the time bull weevil Democrats. Um, and uh, those don't exist anymore. So over time, what has happened is that the parties have sorted and both parties have become more ideological. Uh, so the Republican Party in, in recent decades has been much more conservative than the norm, the Democratic Party much more liberal, and there's just less common ground. And so what that has created is a sense of I'm on, on, on one team and, uh, and the, the other team has to be defeated at all costs. Uh, and, um, so I, you know, I think that there, there've been a whole constellation of reasons that explains, um, this kind of, uh, this kind of, uh, tribalism gerrymandering has, has gone into effect. And so for a lot of people in Congress, they're more worried about being challenged in a primary than a general election. And so if, if you're say a Republican congressman in a deeply red district, uh, you may well be dissuaded from reaching out to Democrats uh, or doing anything that that uh, that might antagonize uh, the far right, um, because that might uh, that might create a primary challenge. We saw that with with Eric Cantor, who was a majority leader, and he was defeated by a guy named Dave Bratt. Uh, I think Cantor was a very good majority leader, um, but it was a sense in which uh, a lot of people felt like um, you know Cantor has was was not sufficiently. Um, ideological. So I think a lot of that has happened, and I think we're, we're now you know, suffering from the consequences of it. So I want to talk a little bit more about some of the consequences. You had tweeted, I think, in the last couple of days about, um, you said, stop making excuses for Greg Gianforte's assaulting a reporter. And you, um, a, another uh, co-worker at the Institute had written an, an article on that. And I started digging around into the responses to that and then also some of the other commentary on the assault. And there is this line of tolerance and intolerance and tolerance of things that prior would not have been tolerated, I would think, and intolerance to things that are in the past would have been given respect and given uh, at least be listened to. One of the things I was surprised at with myself, my reaction to where my lines were, because when, when I thought about interviewing you on the show, I thought, I'm sure there are many areas where we disagree. Um, I'm sure we have many common values. We might not agree as to the actualization of those or how things should happen or what should happen to get to a desired result. But I'm confident 100% we're going to have a productive and constructive and enjoyable conversation. 
I then was listening to Rush Limbaugh talk about the assault, and I thought, I don't know if I could have Rush Limbaugh on the on the show. Maybe, and right. maybe we could talk about something else. But you know, he's calling the reporter a pajama boy. And right. sort of saying that, you know, this was a manly thing to do. Um, that to me seems new and maybe just new in that it's out in the public arena in an acceptable way. Yeah, uh, you know, that that episode uh, and and the commentary that followed that episode really bothered me um, for the reasons that you said. Um I mean, number one, to, to have uh, now a member of Congress because he won the election in Montana, um, body slam a reporter like that and to have done it f- for no apparent reason. He was simply asked a question. The reporter asked a question about a CBO report and how it affected the Republican health care plan. And, and, and this guy just you know, flipped out and, and, uh, and physically assaulted him. And then his campaign lied about it. Um, and in order to get through the election, the reason we know they lied about it is that there was a, there was an audio tape, um, and there were three witnesses, Fox reporters who said, who, um, uh, backed up the reporter's account, uh, not, not, not the candidate's account. Um, and so this was really ugly, um, right. Which is just physically assaulting somebody that is crossing, um, a line that hasn't been crossed in America in a very long time and should never be crossed uh, under any circumstances. So that was one thing. And then there was the uh, support uh, and glee that this attack was met with by Rush Limbaugh above all, but also Laura Ingram and Brent Bozell and, and, and others. Um, And I found it just sickening um, that they, that we had gotten to the point where you could have a physical assault like that and that they not only wouldn't criticize it, but they would, they would delight in it, that they would celebrate it um, and think it was fantastic. Uh, and that, and what was animating it was this idea underneath it, that this guy was a liberal reporter. Now they didn't know he was a liberal reporter. They didn't know the reporter at all. And the question itself was a very straightforward one, as it said about this. Congressional Budget Office and a wimpy millennial as well as being liberal. Yeah, right. And 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 it was interesting that the candidate's office, when they lied about the whole episode, referred to him as a liberal reporter, and that was a signal to the right to say it's okay to physically assault people. Why? Because he's a liberal and he's a reporter. And I think for people like uh, like Rush Limbaugh and others, um, and and I know Rush from years ago, and I, I just I think in the past he never would have gotten to this point, but whether he would have or not, he's there now. And I think what was going on is that there was so much anger, so much uh, rage that had been built up for years. Um, the sense that the country is being lost, that Republicans aren't sufficiently aggressive and standing up to, to liberals and to Democrats. Um, and that was really a, a staple of, uh, of, of Limbaugh and others over, over the recent years in particular. And then you get a guy like Donald Trump um, who validates that in their minds. Um, and remember, Trump throughout the campaign on several occasions endorsed uh, violence uh, at, his, at, his, um, at his rallies. And they loved it then. Um, and now as president, I think he's unleashed some, some really um, ugly uh, sentiments and some, some you know, demons in, in the body politic. 
And, and so being these picked kind of up feelings, by the liberals have, as well. There was also the photograph with Kathy Griffin. Yeah. Which was completely right. Out of the line. comedian. Yeah. Oh, it was it was it was horrible. Uh, where where she had a you know essentially a beheading of Trump with his head in in, in blood. And the left is not a, is not immune to to this at, at all. Uh, the left has some some really uh, ugly elements in it too. Conspiracy minded. When I was in the Bush administration, uh, an astonishingly high number of Democrats believed that the attacks on 9/11 were an inside job uh, that that Bush knew about it, and um, and there was extraordinarily uh, ugly rhetoric. Um, and indeed, if you go all the way back to the Robert Bork nomination uh, in, in, in the 1980s, when uh, uh, Ted Kennedy uh, undertook what I thought was a despicable uh, and dishonest attack on, on Bork, not, not intellectually uh, on Bork, but in a way that was a, just a cartoon image, I think that that really altered um, how uh, the, uh, the nomination uh, process for Supreme Court judges happened. So I think the left has a lot to answer for. I've frankly focused more on the right in, in, in the last few years for several reasons. Number one is that Trump is a president and Republicans control the ha- House and the Senate. And so they have the political uh, power. Uh, and that matters in this in this country. The Democrats now are, are in, in a terrible shape uh, institutionally. And they just they have you know, they don't control the presidency, the House, the Senate, the governorship, state legislatures. But beyond that, I'm a person who is a conservative. I've been a lifelong conservative. It's something that I care deeply about. I've been a lifelong Republican. Uh, it's a party that um, that that that, uh, uh, that I've um, not only been um, supportive of, but I've worked in three Republican administrations in the George W. Bush White House. And so I, I think part of what explains my own reaction to this um, is that I'm seeing things that I think are important. Um, and, and in some respects, even even precious, being um, uh, disfigured uh, and attacked and warped and corrupted, uh, and and it bothers me. Um, and uh, and it's it's you know it's manifesting itself in ways that's that's problematic. Now there are a number of other conservatives, you know, who have who have who have written about this and and pointed this out, um, but. Right now, I'd say it's, you know, it's a minority within the Republican um, Party. But I think this is an important moment. And I care about the country much more than I care about the Republican Party um, and, and, and conservatism. And I think this is really um, acidic for the country. Farid Zakaria did a report uh, in the last couple of days on some of the protests during commencement speeches at the colleges. And he was talking about tolerance and said no one has a monopoly on truth or virtue, that we're trapped in a bubble of closed-mindedness and not coming together around common destiny. And his angle was that liberals may think they're more tolerant, and in actuality, you know, there are just as many liberals who are intolerant as there are conservatives, and just as many Democrats as Republicans. And it's an interesting thing to watch when you look at the protests and think, is it that they aren't listening, that they are denying the most important element of our Constitution, the First Amendment, and not giving this person the the right to speak and be heard? Or is it a protest in reaction to something that has already been said or is going on. And so even that, I think, is a complicated uh, act to disentangle. Yeah, I think it is. And I think, I think Farid is, is right in what he said. And I think that 
I, I respect liberals when they when they're willing to take on their own side. And that's that's a point maybe we can we can talk about because I think part of the way out of this is is the willingness to challenge one's own side. But he's quite right. I mean, there is a there is a kind of hubris and arrogance on the left and among liberals who champion tolerance um, as 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 a great virtue. And in, indeed, if you look at the at the liberal lexicon um, over the last you know two decades or so, tolerance is is considered one of the great great virtues. Um, but they don't really mean it. A lot of them, some do, but a lot don't. Um, and you see it really on the college campuses today. Uh, which are probably the most illiberal places in American society. This is a stunning um, contradiction. I mean, the academy is supposed to be the, the home of free thought and free expression where people are able um, to, to come together and to debate different issues and to hear points of view and different worldviews, ones that challenge us. But of course, anybody who goes on the colleges, particularly college, elite colleges today, knows that that is, that, that is a fiction that there are people who will uh, either dis- not invite conservative speakers or disinvite them, or even recently, Charles Murray uh, and, and a professor that hosted it, who happened to be a liberal, uh, were physically assaulted at Middleburg uh, College um, because they, they, uh, they didn't want to hear what, what Charles Murray had to say, and, and, uh, and they, they, uh, they considered him su- such a pernicious force uh, that they would act that way. This is widespread. Uh, uh, Jonathan Haidt uh, was a terrific social scientist and a person who's who's historically been a man of the left um, has actually taken on this issue of challenging uh, the the, the uh, colleges and universities for their liberal uh, intolerance. It's a kind of illiberalism that that is rising up. Well, and he has and, such um, a great definition, but, I think, of conservative and liberal and open-minded versus not. And I think it's such an important. Um, definition to understand because he talks about just a difference in personality that some people like to try different restaurants and travel and have not have a plan and that others don't like that that's not who they are they want order and they want rules and they want people to follow them that's right i mean the great insight of of jonathan hyde and he wrote this book the righteous mind and and several others one of the things he was so helpful i think uh, for people why he's been such a useful civic force in American society is that he's helped explain conservatives to liberals and liberals to conservatives. He's tried to explain the different value systems that they, that they have, which explains a lot for why liberals and conservatives will react to different to, 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 to issues in different ways. For example, uh, tradition and authority. Um, conservatives tend to put a much higher premium and value on those things than liberals uh, will Liberals would put a much higher value on a quality of outcome, whereas conservatives on a quality of opportunity. And it's very, very helpful to do because I think what, what is so difficult for us today is, is when you encounter somebody who has different views than you and reacts differently to issues or to moments or to, or to events, you have a certain interpretation of them, and we think that that's the right way to to do it. And um, and through our reasoning process, we think there's only a one logical way to get to to where uh, to the answer, which is the way that we do. And that if somebody else has a different answer, and we think it's so obviously wrong, you you then go toward their motivations. That you you think that they must be intellectually or morally defective. 
you know, that they couldn't possibly come to a different point of view in good faith. And so what happens? You then attack them and say, well, they're operating in bad faith. And, and that's what happens a lot today in discourse, that people won't even, uh, they'll skip a serious analytical reasoned argument and go immediately to motivations and say, well, the reason you're doing this is, is because of this or that. Dennis Prager, who's a conservative radio talk show host, generally a thoughtful guy, he, he did it in a piece of National Review when he was trying to explain critics of Donald Trump. And uh, Dennis was so um, dogmatic on this issue that he can't understand how people would take him on. And so what, what was one of the explanations Dennis came up with? He said, well, you know, these never Trumpers, critics of Trump, they, they, they're worried they won't be uh, invited to elite dinner parties. So that has to be the motivation. In other words, we, we all know better, but we're criticizing Trump because we want to make sure that we get invited to the elite dinner parties. I mean, that's ludicrous. Um, and, uh, and, it's, and it's ad hominem. And Dennis is, a, is, as I said, generally a thoughtful person. But this is, this is what happens when, uh, when, when your mind becomes um, so ossified and so dogmatic. Um, and, uh, and I think one of the ways out of that is that we have to increase uh, the people in our orbit. We have to get to know and spend time with and build relationships with people who have views different than, than ours, positions different than ours. And, and especially to find people with standing in your life um, that, that you feel like have your own, has your own best interest at heart. Um, because then when the differences occur, it's much harder to dehumanize people that you know and that you, that you, that you can't attack, you know, their motivation, their character. And it forces you to understand that, well, maybe that they just have a, a, a different way of thinking about things. So let's talk a little bit more about intellectual honesty and what it requires and, and what it is. And maybe the willingness to be wrong, which seems to be an important element of it as well. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, you know, um, intellectual honesty and a kind of intellectual humility. Um, I do believe that, you know, conservatism, rightly understood, um, has a lot to say about that. Um, and the way I would explain it is um, that I believe that there is objective truth, uh, that it exists. But I think our, our capacity, the capacity of any individual, single individual, to fully ascertain truth um, is limited. It doesn't mean that some people don't see truth better than others or that some people are right and others wrong. I'm not a relativist. I'm not saying that, that if you took Martin Luther King and Joseph Stalin, that there's nothing to distinguish between them because truth is relative. That's not what I'm saying. King was obviously closer in his, in his, in his uh, political views and his person to, 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 to moral truth than, than Stalin or Mao or, or, or others. What I'm saying is that even if, say, you have the right, um, uh, uh, that you uh, grasp truth better than I do on a particular issue, even if that were the case, that everybody has a limited angle of vision, and none of us can see the full scope of truth, and that there is wisdom in the collective, um, and that there is something that if we listen to other people carefully uh, and well, that they can help us to see things that we wouldn't otherwise see. That doesn't mean that you would change my mind or I would change your mind on, on an issue, say school choice or, or, or welfare reform. But what it might help 
is is for me to be able to see your point of view a little bit differently, and maybe it'll require me to recalibrate my my view some, temper them some. Um, maybe uh, there there will be uh, you'll be speaking for a certain group of people that I wouldn't have been in touch with and wouldn't know their stories and their struggles, and. So I think that's part of it, which is which is a kind of modesty about our capacity to know truth. And the other one is is also to be able to to admit error and mistakes and to be willing to alter our views. And that is one thing I think has just been lost in political debate in general, because if you step back and you said, well, what would be the purpose of debate? Any kind of debate, theological debate, political debate uh, of, of, of any kind, philosophical debates. It ought to be that each of us comes away from it having uh, seen the truth a little bit better and taken steps toward it. Um, and I think what's happening now uh, to, to, to an extraordinary degree is that we're just viewing debates as contests that we're supposed to win. And so if you and I had a debate and you knew much more about an issue, you systematically blew apart the rationale and the facts for my position, the odds are not that I would reconsider my view or come to your your point of view. It's that I would become angry because you would have exposed me that I just have a certain view of something and I just feel it and I want it to be true. And if you systematically blow apart my arguments and my and my and my factual basis, then I'll be exposed, but I'm not likely to change. And there's a very different way of looking at that. And one of them was a friendship, it's a lovely friendship uh, that's, that's been written about between C.S. Lewis, who was a Christian, a great Christian apologist, and of course the author of uh, the, the Narnia Tales, and poet, and many other things, and Owen Barfield. And he, they were part of a group called the Inklings in the middle part of the last century, which is a group of intellectuals um, in England. And Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien really began the Inklings. And there was a description of this relationship between Lewis and Barfield, and Lewis had two kinds of friends he described. One was uh, a first uh, friend and a second. The first is a kind of alter ego, somebody who sees the world the same way that you do, you do and can kind of complete your sentences. The second friend is a person who reads all the same books you do and draws all the wrong conclusions from the books. And there's a role for both kinds of friends. And the great thing about the Lewis and Barfield friendship was as they went back and forth um, debating and 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 and, uh, and uh, having uh, uh, you know, discussions where, where where Lewis would argue one thing and Barfield would argue another, that they treasured that friendship precisely because they both felt like um, they were better for having had the other person in their life. That they were open to the arguments of the other person. That there was a kind of modesty that said, "I may not be, um, I may not be right," or that somebody else may have something to teach me. And what they felt their relationship was and what the point of discourse and engagement with other people was, is to help us to see things a little bit more clearly uh, and, 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 to, and to see reality better than we would without them. And that's really what's been lost. And I think we need to recover it. We need people in political life to help explain again what, what the point of, of discourse and debate is. And maybe part of the key to that is to redefine some of the terms, that facts are facts, that truths may also add in someone's perspective or someone's values or even someone's personality or their perspective on what they're seeing and how they're seeing it and the lens they're seeing it through. And that if we can 
agree that facts exist and there aren't alternative facts and that where the gray areas may be are what those facts lead us to believe and that maybe that our identities are not wrapped up in being right. You know, it seems that people that are more confident and actually who they are, what they believe, how they see things, are less likely to be so reactive to someone that disagrees with them because it's not so threatening. I think that's right. I think a tremendous amount of people's own self-esteem, self-conception um, is wrapped up, particularly in, in politics, in, in being what they think is right. Um, and um, and so they just don't, they don't want to concede any ground and they don't ever want to be able to say I was wrong or I don't understand this issue um, or I have more, more, more to learn about it. Um, you know, humility is an important virtue. Um, it's an important Christian virtue. I'm say that as somebody who, who is an evangelical Christian. And yet it's one that I think is, is increasingly rare and, and ignored uh, within contemporary um, life. And I think we, we, we have to find it uh, again. Um, and I think if we did, um, I think that there would be a better chance that the, that the, uh, the country would, would, would begin to heal uh, and that we would begin to listen to, you, to one another a little bit uh, more closely uh, and listen to each other um, uh, better uh, and listen to each other well. And, um, and if we can do that, that would, um, that would be a step in the right direction. Well, we're out of time for today. I want to just thank you so much for coming on the show, joining us today. It was an absolute pleasure to speak with you. I hope you'll come back and maybe you and I can have a constructive discourse on um, the conservative views of climate change and yours in particular. I would love to do that. And I enjoyed the conversations very much. All right, thank you. This is Ellie Newman on That Got Me Thinking. This is KDPI 88.5 FM. Catch 'em, listener supported radio.